<laughs> All right, everybody hear me okay from where you are? Oh, yes. All right. Uh, okay? Huh? A little bit? Okay. Um, welcome to Summer Seminar Session 2. If you weren't here from Session 1, welcome. Glad you're here. We're going to give a little recap to catch you up. Um, if you are back, glad you're here. Um, raise your hand if you woke up in Omaha this morning. It's great. We went to the College World Series yesterday, which was awesome. My my inner childhood love of baseball was on full display. It was uh, it was amazing. So, but we drove back to be here with you guys for summer seminar session two. Uh, this is like like the difference between two weeks ago and tonight. It's like fifteen degrees at least. This is what I imagine. Like when it's cooling down, you know, not sweating through our shirts and uh, you know. So this is lovely, and thank you again. I mean, there, nobody can hear hear us, but we're grateful to these guys that they're allowing us to hang out on their patio uh, for these summer seminars. We do have a few handouts. Uh, I think Drew came around, so if you want a, a handout, you can have it. It's also in our Slack channel if you want to access an electronic version. I did feel a little bit like part of what we're talking about tonight is like how human beings are stewards of God's creation. So it felt a little weird to show up with like this pack of like printed off. Like, it's probably not the best stewardship, but we you're did storing, print some. You're storing carbon. This is carbon storage. Something like that, yes. So, anyway, we're here. You're here. Let me pray. We'll dive in. Father, we're thankful for this day. Uh, no matter whether we drove from Omaha or today was like uh, most Wednesdays, wherever our stories, we thank you that you are in it, um, that your hidden hand is at work, and, uh, and that you've brought us to this place at this time, uh, we believe, not just by accident, but by your own uh, purpose, uh, so that we can know you more, so we can know your scriptures more, but as always, Lord, not just to know you more, but um, that we would become greater lovers of you and of our neighbor, and find ourselves most deeply in your story, in the ident- identity that you have given to us. So help us by your Holy Spirit now, and we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, what we're doing is uh, in the summer seminars, we're talking about the Bible as a grand story, um, the big picture of the Bible. When we, we sent out this survey, we gave you a bunch of uh, hot button issues, uh, and you guys clicked on those things because we're all interested in those things, but when you got a chance to write in your own, uh, like, what do you want to learn? Overwhelmingly, people are like, I, I kind of want to know the Bible. Like, can you tell me? The big, the big story of the Bible. So that's what we're doing. Let me give you a recap of session one. The session one was learning to approach the Bible as a grand story, that it is telling one story from Genesis to Revelation. And it's hard to understand because it doesn't, doesn't read out like a novel, right? And actually it's not even in uh, consecutive order uh, time-wise. So, uh, but it, the Bible is, if we have eyes to see, and that's what we're trying to figure out uh, in, this, in this session, the Bible is telling one grand story. So in the beginning, we tried to situate the challenges we're navigating in our times. And the two challenges, I, as a recap, one, if we have fragmented Bibles, what I mean by that is if, if we just go to the Bible to like pull out a little moral lesson, a little encouragement, a little something here and there, if we don't have a sense that it is telling a bigger story, if we have fragmented Bibles, we're going to end up with fragmented people. <laughs> so we're going to be living in all sorts of different stories ourselves. One of the quotes, by the way, all quotes are from the drama of scripture. This is a book this is based off of. encourage you to read along if you want, um, but I also quote extensively, so it's kind of like reading it uh, if, you, if you're okay with that. But anyway, here's one of the things they say. All human communities live out of some story that provides a context for understanding the meaning of history and gives shape and direction to their lives. If we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it is in danger of being absorbed into whatever other story is shaping our culture, and it will thus cease to shape our lives as it should. So we're, so we're trying to figure out why this, why this is such a big deal. Like, why You might be like, why does it matter that I understand the Bible is one big story? Uh, hence, the unity of Scripture is no minor matter. <laughs> a fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshipers meaning we're living for something else than God's story. This made me think of like, uh, uh, what's uh, this game that Nora plays on the iPhone, uh, Slither.io or Slither.io, I don't know how you say it. You know this thing? It's like a worm, and the way you go is like you run into other worms, and it like adds to your length, and you run in, what's it called? It sounds like snake. Snake. Like yes. <laughs> but that's, that's the image that came to mind, right? Yes, if we, Slither.io, see? 
I, I'm hip. I'm with it. Uh, That's the new version of an old game. Yes. So it's like if we have fragmented Bibles, we're like those little worms, and some other big story is going to come and, and just absorb us into its, its bigger story. And we kind of talked last week about how that's happening, uh, how sometimes the Christian story can get morphed and absorbed into other bigger cultural stories, and it thus ceases to become Christianity, and therefore it ceases to shape our lives as it should. Um, so that's the big idea, and we talked about as Westerners, we are allergic to the idea of one grand authoritative story that defines the world and how to live in it, right? That's that's the premise of pluralism is you got a story, you got a story, you got a story, it's fine as long as we play nice with each other, right? There are no, there's no one grand authoritative story. And uh, and we think like that because that's part of like the air we breathe as as Westerners uh, in this time. So we, we, dove, we did a deep dive into some of this, talking about how we have shifted from seeing the world with an intrinsic authoritative meaning but to which we can form ourselves to now seeing the world as like the raw materials from which we can gather and construct our own meaning and identity. Does that make sense? So that was like Charles Taylor's expressive individualism, Philip Reeves' psychological man, talking about just the differences of the way, the way we live in the world now that wasn't true 50 years ago. An example to think about it is, if I can uh, pick on Disney movies for a second, the difference between Sword in the Stone and, like, The Little Mermaid and then Frozen. Has anybody, have you guys seen all these? Okay, if you don't know, it is, I think this is pretty, a pretty good illustration of how things have changed in the last 30 years or so. Sword in the Stone, if you don't know the story, Arthur needs Merlin to, like, reveal the nature of the world to him. Like, teach him how the world is. And then he actually needs a vision from heaven to allow him to draw this sword from the stone and then find his identity, find his rightful place in the world. Right? That's what Charles Taylor says is a mimetic way of being in the world, which is the world has intrinsic meaning and, and I need like divine help to sort of figure it out and find my identity in the world. Versus, you know, what, 20 years later, Little Mermaid is, uh, I'm a, what do you call those things with the fish? I'm a mermaid. I want to be a human. Right. Like I can form the world if I want to, you know, like and I'll make a deal with this uh, octopus lady uh, to become to become a human. Right. It's a totally different way. of Yes. What's her name? Ursula. Oh, so, yes. Little mermaid yes. Has a mermaid in yes. Little mermaid. <laughs> yeah. That's the word I couldn't think of. Did I mention I woke up in Omaha this morning? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a totally different way. Like, there's no intrinsic. If you're, if you're a mermaid and you want to be a human, go be a human, right? Whatever it, whatever it costs you. Or take Frozen. By the way, watch The Little Mermaid. Watch Frozen. It's really great. But this is way more analysis than we should be given to it. But it is interesting to see our cultural thing. So Frozen, Elsa doesn't need anyone, really. Like, her thing is she steps away from the community, from the community's expectations, from the community's interpretation of reality. And her famous song is what? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Right? That's, that's what Charles Taylor says is a poetic view of the world. So we're just talking about this is why we're allergic to one big authoritative story that gives shape to our lives. All right? So that's, we were understanding the challenges. And then last week, we were getting our bearings on the Bible as a whole. We're going to talk about it as a big, as a big story how do we find the main entrance? Because it doesn't read like a novel. First thing you do uh, to change the metaphor a little bit, you got to find the front doors into the story. And I suggested that the, dub- the, the double door entrance into the story of the Bible is kingdom and covenant. Kingdom and covenant. So kingdom is, that's what the Bible, if you ask me, what is the big story the Bible's telling? It's the, sto- it's the story of the coming of the kingdom of God to earth. All right, that is what Jesus taught us to pray. All right, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom of God is wherever God is reigning uh, as king over his people and eventually over all creation. And in covenant is particularly about the special relationships that God makes with people as he works out his kingdom in history. So when you hold these two things together, we see we're getting the sense of the big picture. God is a great king over all things, and he's bringing his kingdom to earth through a people who live under his gracious reign, who are in covenant with him. Does that make sense? So those are kind of the double doors if it's, we're entering into this big, this big story. And then we, lastly, uh, we understood the structure of the story. So if we take the classic way of breaking down um, kind of like a five-act play, we added an act six that is distinct to Christianity. 
But if you take the story of the kingdom coming to earth in Act 1, God establishes the kingdom. That's creation. Act 2, there's rebellion in the kingdom. That's fall. Act 3, God, the king chooses Israel. Uh, that's the way he's initiating redemption into the world. Uh, scene 1 of Act 3, uh, there's a people for the king. Scene 2 is a land for his people. Then there's this 400-year interlude, <laughs> a kingdom story waiting for an ending in the intertestamental period. And then Act 4, the coming of the king, redemption is accomplished. Act 5, spreading the news of the king. This is the mission of the church, first from Jerusalem to Rome, and then from Rome to all the world. And then Act 6, the return of the king, when redemption will be completed. So, like, that's, if we broke it up into a six-act play, that's what it would be. And so, what we're doing tonight is we're doing Act 1 and 2, creation and fall. It's a lot. We're going to get through it. You're... Your hair may be flying back a little bit if, you have, if you're fortunate enough to have hair, but we're going to get there. All right. Any questions, comments from the recap last week? Anything you thought of in the two weeks? Uh, anyways, this has kind of popped up in your life. Any thoughts, comments, snide remarks, criticisms? Any questions about what I just said? I'm recording, but it's not going into any amplification. There yeah. are no speakers. <laughs> Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. Is this thing on? Testing, one, two, testing. Be awesome. All right. Let's dive in to creation uh, and fall. So Act 1, God establishes his kingdom. and Act 2, there's rebellion in the kingdom. So remember, the purpose of Act 1 in any play or most books, most movies, although sometimes I like to start at the end nowadays and then show you how they get back to the end. But generally, in Act 1 is to give essential background information in a story, introduce the important characters, and establish the situation that will be disrupted by the events about to unfold. That makes sense, right? That's how most good stories start. Here's, here's the situation, here's the people, here's the stable thing that's about to be disrupted by conflict. So, what we're talking about is the book of Genesis. So let's talk a little bit about the cultural context of Genesis so we can understand how to understand. This is really just Genesis 1 and 2, but we need to understand Genesis in context to make sense of all that. So let's ask three things right out. Author, audience, and purpose. Author uh, of Genesis is Moses. Uh, he's the author of the first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah or the Law of Moses. And the audience, this is really important, because uh, if we don't understand this, it's hard to understand what Genesis is doing, especially 1 and 2. The audience is the Israelites between e Egypt and the Promised Land. So imagine Israelites just came out of Egypt, you know, the big parting of the Red Sea, this, this great miracle. And they're in the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. And that's when Moses writes Genesis and all, all these things happen. But Genesis in particular happens as they're in journey. So the quote there says, Moses wrote Genesis while Israel was wandering in the desert after leaving Egypt and before entering the promised land. That means the original audience of Genesis were the people preparing to conquer the land of Canaan. This is important because Genesis must be read from their eyes first before you can apply it to your own situation. As you read Genesis, ask yourself, how would this help the Israelites in the wilderness? What was God's purpose in telling them this? How would this strengthen their faith? Moses' purpose in writing to them was to inspire faith in God as they faced the challenges of the exodus and the conquest. So, when you see that sort of context, now we can understand some of the purposes of Genesis. And I'm going to give you two purposes. One is polemical, and the other is positive. Because uh, polemical means argumentative a little bit. So the polemical reason for Genesis was to challenge the pagan stories of the Israelites like, you know, as they're journeying, going into the land of Canaan, to challenge some of the stories from where they came from in Egypt and where they're going amongst the Canaanites. Because all these other people had their own views of how the world began and who God was and what it meant to live in this world, right? So Genesis is, is meant to challenge some of those things. And the main question is, who is the Lord God? Who is Israel's God? So you get these two names of God. One is Elohim, which means God, which is the world's creator, like the supreme God. It's the general name used for God used throughout the ancient Near East. But Yahweh 
is a different name. Yahweh means Lord, and it's the personal name of God as, as him connected in covenant with his people called Israel. Does that make sense? So Elohim is he's the world's creator. Yahweh is he's Israel's redeemer. This personal name he gave to them in Exodus chapter 3. So this is really interesting when you get to Genesis chapter 1, and the author brings these words together. So Elohim is used to describe the God who brings the whole creation into existence out of nothing. But in Genesis 2, another name is used, Yahweh Elohim, that is the Lord God. So when the names Yahweh, Lord, and Elohim, God, are joined, as in Genesis 2-4, it makes the powerful point that the same God who rescues Israel from slavery is the God who has made all things, the creator of heaven and earth. So Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is also the God of all the earth over which his lordship shines forth. Which is really interesting, because what it's saying is the Israelites first come to know God through Moses and through their experience through the Red Sea as a rescuer, as a deliverer, right? As a redeemer. And now only afterward, as Moses writes this history, are they coming to know him as the creator of the universe? Which we're going to talk about this. We're going to do small group discussion again. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to talk about this. But I think this is kind of analogous to how all of our relationships with Jesus go. Doesn't it? Like, for me, it was first, God saves me, right? He saves me from my sins. And then second, I'm like, oh man, he's renewing the entire creation, right? You get to know him as Redeemer, and now Moses is going, now I want you to know him also as the creator of everything. So you understand why the world exists, right? He's not only saved you, he's also the God over everything. Why is this important? The ancient Near East had many competing accounts of how the world came into existence. These stories were common in Egypt, where Israel was captive there, and in Canaan, where Israel was going to go uh, to take over its land. And it would have been all too easy for the Israelites to adopt the stories of those who lived in the land before them or alongside them, who, after all, supposedly knew the land much better than they did themselves. Many of the gods worshipped by the Canaanites were closely associated with the fertility of the land. The newcomers struggling to learn how to farm there would be tempted to call out to these gods rather than to the Lord God. Does that make sense? So you got this, all these people coming out and settling into the land of Canaan and, and First thing you have to do as an agrarian people is learn how to farm, right? And so if they go to their Canaanite neighbors and go, hey, I'm having a hard time with my garden. What do you do to make it grow? And they're like, oh, well, funny you should ask. We go to the temple where Baal is worshipped. He's the god of fertility. And as you um, uh, engage with the temple prostitute, Baal is pleased by that. And so he blesses you with fertility. That's how we do it, right? That's, that's, how, that's how Baal worship worked, by the way. Which is why it was very popular. Uh, not, not rocket science there. So you see, these people are coming out, and there's all these other competing stories of like how you live in the land, how you make crops grow, how you how you have lots of kids, you know, how you grow a family. And if they don't understand that God is the creator, then they're going to turn to these other gods and live into these other stories to to make sense of the world around them. Make sense? So, for example, let's take an example from Genesis 1.16. Moses writes, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So why does the author call the sun and the moon the greater light and the lesser light? Probably because the sun and the moon were so often worshipped as gods by the people among whom the Israelites were now living. In the Genesis story, readers cannot mistake the sun as divinity to be worshipped. Because the scripture clearly describes the sun as a created thing, an object placed in the heavens for the same practical purpose of giving light. The attention is thus all on the one who has created this marvelous light, the one whose power is so great that he can merely say a word, and an entire universe springs into being. No mere light in the heavens deserves to be bowed down to. God alone is divine. He alone is to be worshipped. The though the whole creation is very good, it is so because the one who has created it is infinitely superior to anything he has made. This is really fascinating, right? So they're coming out of Egypt, and you know what the prime god was in Egypt? Ra, Ra the sun god. So in Egypt, the, the supreme god is, is the sun. And now Moses writes in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 1, No, God made the greater and the lesser lights. They're not, they're not gods to be worshipped. They're things that our God put for a specific purpose, to give light during the day and light during the night. It's pretty fascinating. So, it's, again, it's polemical. It's taking on these competing narratives of the world they live in, which, again, 
we're going to do the same thing, especially in your small group discussion. How does our understanding of how God created the world challenge our modern secular narratives of how the world exists and how we exist in it? Okay, so that's kind of the polemical reason. Second, the positive reason is this, to teach us about creation, teach us about the world God made. Genesis creation narrative is more than a polemic. It also aims to teach us positively what faith in God means for how we think about the world he has made and how we live in it. And we need to know, any, if you guys have ever been interested in kind of the science and faith story, Genesis is not going to answer all your questions. It's not going to answer all our 21st century uh, uh, curiosities concerning the details of how God made the world. That's not how it was written. But it has been very carefully put together, so we need to focus on the way in which the story comes to us, not the way we wish it had come to us, right? Um, so one, one pastor, Mark Bates, writes, Moses did not write Genesis in response to Charles Darwin. However, he may have written it, uh, parts of it in response to Marduk, the Baals, and the Asherahs. It's the pagan deities uh, of their day. So over against uh, pagan religious notions dominant in Egypt and in Canaan, where they left and where they're going, Genesis 1 proclaims the truth about God, about humankind, and about the world. One example, if you know the, the Babylonian uh, story of how the world came into existence, is called the Enuma Elish. You guys remember studying this in, uh, in school, like way back once a time? Um, it's fascinating to think about now, but the Enuma Elish, if you don't know, this says this is their account of how the world began. It began when the god Marduk rose to be the chief god by defeating the great god of the sea, Tiamat, and from her slain corpse, he creates the world. So that's where the world comes from, out of the, out of the decaying corpse of Tiamat. And then uh, Marduk goes and he kills another god by the name of Kingu, and he creates mankind from Kingu's blood. And mankind are only created to serve the gods. That's their only purpose, is to serve the great god Marduk and all the other pantheon of gods as well. So the whole story of the Enuma Elish is many gods fighting each other for supremacy, having to kill each other in order to have the right to create the world, and then creating the world out of this, out of the blood or the corpse of these gods that they have slain. So contrast that with the story of Christianity. The summary of, is Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 9. The work of creation is when God made all things out of nothing, by the word of his power, in the space of six days, in all, very good. It's a good bit different, right, than the Babylonian accounts. First of all, he made all things out of nothing. Um, theologically, we call that ex nihilo, out of nothing. It means no creating things out of the slain corpse of other gods, right? No pre-existing materials. God just speaks, and it happens. God is the ultimate creator. I love it. Even the most creative people in our, in our world are starting with existing materials, right? The best chef, the food already exists. The best artist, the paint, the canvas, it already exists. The best music, right? It all already exists. We're so incredibly creative, but we're, all, we're using pre-existing materials. Only God creates out of nothing, ex nihilo. Second, by the word of his power, like, that is so strategic. No fighting with other gods, right? No, no, no beating up other gods to see who's going to be the chief god. All he does is what? Let there be light, and there's light. No fighting with other guys. He just speaks, and it happens. He does it in the space of six days. Everybody wants to know, what does that mean? Is that six literal days? Is that six ages? We don't know. <laughs> I, I'll give you my take on it, but I, the point is, the, in my opinion, the point is to show literarily how God is creating the world. So if you take the problem in Genesis 1 and 2, it says God in Genesis 1, 2, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth, it was dark, it was formless, and it was empty. So if you take God creating the world, there's two problems right out of the way. It doesn't have any form, and it's empty. It doesn't have any creatures. So God spends days 1, 2, and 3 forming the earth, and then he spends 4, 5, and 6 filling the earth so, that the, so the world is not formless and empty anymore. So on day one, and you, if you can compare those things, you can see what God is doing. In day one, he creates the day and the night. Uh, day four, he fills those, those realms with the sun, with the moon and the stars. Day two, he creates the sky and the sea. And day five, he fills both those realms with the birds and the fish. Day three, he creates the sea and the land. 
Day six, he creates the animals and humankind to rule over it all, to fill the earth. Uh, also vegetation on day three. And then on day seven, God's, God, God rests to give us an example of how our week should be. We work six days and then we rest on the seventh. Um, again, is, is, is the author of Genesis telling us how many days it took to create the world? It's a mystery. We're trying to figure it out. <laughs> we all have, we have a bunch of theories about what that means. But I think the main point is God created all the realms and then he filled them all uh, to create this beautiful, teeming, awesome world that we inhabit. So all those things. And then the last thing the Shorter Catechism says that it's all very good. These early chapters of Genesis are very positive about the world, though it is created and therefore ne- must never be put on the same level as the uncreated God. It is always described as good. Creation is great diversity, light and darkness, land and sea, rivers and minerals, plants, animals, birds and fish, human beings, both male and female. And this bounty is part of God's intention, suggesting a marvelous harmony of created things. Like an or- orchestra, it produces a symphony of praise to the Creator. So again, remember what's happening in Act 1. God is establishing His kingdom. And this is the kingdom He's creating. And it's beautiful in the way it is, it is ordered and the way it is filled summary the bible depicts this created material world as the very theater of god's glory the kingdom over which he reigns all right and then the next part by the way we are going to have like little small group discussions so if you have questions along the way write it down keep it in your mind we'll talk together and then we'll come back and talk all together in the end secondly what act one should do in establishing the kingdom is introduce the main characters that are in the story of the bible and the main two characters are God and humanity. And we won't, we won't dive as deep into this. Uh, you can go back and read over my very detailed outline. But the God who brings all things into being, starting with God, tells us he's eternal, right? He has no beginning, no end. Uh, he's one, one God in three persons against all the other narratives, which were multiple gods. He's distinct from creation, so that's against things like pantheism, which says the world is basically like an emanation from God, or the world is divine uh, as well. Scripture says, no, no, God is distinct from his creation. He's sovereign over it, but he's not removed from it, right? That's against what we call deism, which is God made the world, he wound it up like a clock, and then he stepped back and he's not involved in it anymore. Um, and so, again, all these things are speaking against the, the cultural narratives of their day and ours, by the way, <laughs> of understanding like how God created the world. The main things I think are most interesting are the last two bullet points under God, which is he's powerful and he's personal. I think I talked about this a few weeks ago in a sermon. That that doesn't exist in any other religious system. In any, in any other religious system, the God has to choose. Right? You can either be powerful or you can be personal, and almost always they're powerful. <laughs> so they're, they're the chief God, they're above everything else, but they have no interest in relating to human beings at all. Except our God. He's powerful. So by causing the creation to come into being by his word of power, God establishes it as his own vast kingdom. He thus establishes himself as the great king over all creation without limits of any kind. And he's worthy to receive all glory, honor, and power in the worship of what he has created. That's what Revelation 4.11 says. You're worthy because you made everything. right? You are the great God, all-powerful God over everything. Again, no warring for dominance like the other narratives, but he's, but he's intensely personal and he wants a relationship with human beings that he's created. There's a personal relationship between the divine king and his human subjects. God has a particular task and invites them to participate in it with him, filling and ordering the world, like he does, by the way, which he has given them for their home. The personal character of God is shown even more clearly in Genesis 2 and 3. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, walks in the garden with Adam and Eve and shows the most intimate personal concern for them, their needs and their responsibilities. So there's lots of things you could take away about who this God is that we're introduced to in Genesis 1 and 2. But that's, that's the biggest summary. He's, he's all-powerful and yet he's personal and wants to relate to the human beings he's made. The other important character in the scripture is humankind. And we are introduced in Genesis 1 and 2 as well. That's God's image bearers. Uh, again, we won't go into all details of this, but notice that Genesis create, uh, depicts us as the high point of God's creation. 
Like, compare that to the Enuma Elish, where we're just created out of the blood to, like, slavishly work for the gods. We're almost the afterthought. In this, we're the, we're the pinnacle. We're the pinnacle of God's creation because we're the only ones that are made in his image. We're creaturely. We're personal. Uh, I want to uh, zero in on the last three ones. Uh, we are fundamentally similar to God, which is what it means to be made in his image. Though God is the infinite creator and, and, and humanity merely his finite creation, there is something fundamentally similar between them. Will somebody read Genesis 1, 26 to 28 while I take a sip of tea? Read loud so we can hear you. Notice it says, from this it should be clear that the fundamental similarity between God and humanity is humankind's unique vocation. It's calling or commissioning by God himself. Under God, humanity is to rule over the non-human parts of creation on land and in sea and air, much as God is the supreme ruler over all. This old scholar by the name of Von Rad, which is a great name. I wish my last name was Von Rad. Uh, anyway. This is, really, this is really interesting. Just as powerful earthly kings, to indicate their claim to, of dominion, erect an image of themselves in the provinces of their empire where they do not personally appear, so man is placed upon the earth in God's image as God's sovereign emblem. He is really only God's representative, summoned to maintain and enforce God's claim to dominion over the earth. The decisive thing about man's similarity, similarity to God, therefore, is his function in the non-human world. That makes sense. Again, we don't live in a world with kings, so it's a little bit. There's not images of Joe Biden everywhere, uh, or like statues of him. But we have Mount Rushmore. We do have Mount Rushmore. We have we do have monuments. We have money with people's faces. That's true. We do have images of them showing who's like chiefly in charge. I always just go to like, like, uh, like Iraq. You remember when my the the chief image was that with them toppling that statue of Saddam Hussein. Remember that. Because he, he had placed images of himself everywhere. So that everywhere you went, you knew, like, who's in charge, right? Who's, who's the great king? Who's the one who's in charge of all this? Well, that's what God has done with you, right? He's filled the world with Im- his own image bearers. So that each of us reflect and show, even as we do, as we have dominion, as we rule our little parts of the world, again, not as tyrants, but as servants, we show the world who God is. We, we give a little glimpse of, of the great king who's over everything, which is fascinating. Another way to say that is we are God's royal stewards. We have been put here not to exploit the creation, <laughs> not to make a bunch of copies of paper, anyway, uh, not to exploit it, but to develop the hidden potentials in God's creation so the whole of it may celebrate his glory. See Genesis 2.15. So one, one illustration of this in the, in the book, which I think is really interesting, he says, so imagine that you are a 15th century sculptor. All right, you got, your, you got that in your mental space? You're a 15th century sculptor. And one day you get a message from Michelangelo asking if you would be willing to come to his studio to complete a piece of work that he has begun. Now he mentions that you are expected to continue his work in such a way that his own reputation, Michelangelo's own reputation, will be enhanced by the finished product. So that's... That's kind of what, what it's like to be a human being. God has created this beautiful world, and he brings you in to say, now finish it in a way that will reflect me. Finish it in a way that, that will uh, reflect on the, the original artist himself. That's what it means to have dominion over the creation. This sort of compliment that we, that we are people, that, that he's given us the privilege of being his stewards of his great work of creation and to bring it to a place where people are in all more and more of the, of the original artists who started all this. And then a note in there, there is this distinction between male and female. It says in the book, a gender distinction is built into creation so that God's image bearers are always male or female, man or woman. That is, we always stand in relationship to one another as well as in relationship to God. 
None of us can be fully human on our own. We are always in a variety of relationships. And we don't have time to go deeply into this topic, but there is a, con- a conversation going on in our world right now about what is gender, right? Is it, is it just a cultural construct um, or is it part of our createdness? And I think the answer is actually both. <laughs> there, is a, there is a cultural construct of what, of what masculinity and femininity means. Like if you ask it what it means in the U.S. today compared to what it was in Scotland 500 years ago, like there, there is this understanding that gender can fluctuate. Underst- the understanding is the embodiment of gender can fluctuate from culture to culture. But we're saying built into what it means to be a human being built into God's great diversity is that he has made us male and female, right? There is, so that our gender is actually not just a cultural construct. It is also a part of our imageness of the way God has made us. Again, I don't want to like walk over a landmine and blow it up and we can, like, we can talk about this, but it's not the main point of this section. It's just saying we can't talk about Genesis 1 and 2 without talking about the way God created the world, right? And that our gender differences are a part of that good design from the beginning. It gets complicated. Sometimes as part of a fallen world, those things get confused. Right? We've, we understand that and we address it with compassion. But it's just to say, there is, this is a part of our identity, our imageness as made in the image of God. So in sum, humans are made for God and also for one another and for the creation to be at work within it. <laughs> so... As we close out Act 1, you got, you got the, the right, setting the scene, you got the kingdom God has created, you got the players, you got God, and you got humankind. And lastly, you got the situation that, be, that will be disrupted by the events that are about to unfold. So the summary of the whole, as it begins, the creation is redolent with shalom. That's, that's, that's the Bible's word, the Old Testament word for peace, meaning the rich integrated relational wholeness God intends for his creation. Think about it. I mean, before the fall, it's just every single relationship is flourishing, right? People with God, people with each other, people with creation. Like that's what we were created for, shalom. The life of Adam and Eve is the life of shalom. They walk with God. They have each other, first marriage. The garden provides all they need as, as they till its fertile, fertile soil and prune its burgeoning plants there is no storm cloud on this horizon. No hint of trouble to come. What could possibly go wrong? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> All right. Let me check my time. Oh, we're good. We're good. All right. Let me talk about Act 2, which is significantly shorter but heavier. And then we'll give you some, some time to talk amongst yourselves. So, God creates this wonderful kingdom, Act 2 which is rebellion in the kingdoms, the falls, Genesis 3 to 12. So act two is where the first action begins, usually with the introduction of a significant conflict. I like Eugene Peterson's summary of what we're talking about. A catastrophe has occurred. We are no longer in continuity with our good beginning. We have been separated from it by disaster. We are also, of course, separated from our good end. We are, in other words, in the middle of a mess. It's important to understand what we are not told and what we are told in the, in the Genesis account. What we are not told, we are not told where talking serpents come from or even who he is, interestingly. Only later in the Bible do we learn that this creature is also na- known as Satan. It's in Revelation 12, 9. But the question, we're not told how could such a, create, a creature like this disrupt God's good creation? These questions are not answered. And they alert us to the mystery that surrounds the origin of evil in the creation. We should take this mystery seriously. Here's what we are told. We are told that part of being human is the freedom to choose. Even in God's good creation, Adam and Eve's freedom to love means they may also choose not to love. Hence, they may experience temptation. That's all we're told. We're not told where he comes from, how he has this power, why it's at work. But we are told that part of being a human being in this good world God has created is they, they have a choice whether to love God back. They have a choice whether to follow his commands uh, or to experience temptation and to go a different direction. Now, this is really important. What is their temptation? It is vital to see that the tree 
represents the tree of the, no, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It represents the temptation to be autonomous. From the Greek word autos, self, and nomos, law, self-law. Be a law unto yourself. Adam and Eve can't obey God or they can defy him. They can yield to God's law and enjoy life or they can try it and find their own way apart from his instruction and experience death. The temptation they face through the serpent is to assert their autonomy, to become a law unto themselves. Autonomy means choosing oneself as the source for determining what is right and wrong rather than relying on God's word for direction. Interestingly, this is the first competing narrative that shows up in the Bible. The first counter story to, to the Christian story. The serpent says, will you really die if you eat of that fruit? Or is God afraid that you might become his equals once you know good and evil for yourself, right? The, the story, the only story that Adam and Eve knew up to this point is God made us and he's good to us and he gave us all this and he told us not to eat from that one tree. <laughs> and then here comes the serpent spinning a different story. How do, you, how do you know? Can you trust him? Can you trust this guy? Maybe he's holding out on you. Maybe that's the best fruit in the whole freaking garden and he doesn't want you to have it. Or maybe he knows that once you eat of it, you're going to become like him and he doesn't want you to be like him. And so, right, this is the first counter narrative competing narrative in the in the in the bible will you really die is what god said really true so this is interesting because that it helps us understand that the fundamental nature of sin the fundamental nature of the the first temptation in the bible is a quest for autonomy a desire to separate ourselves from god to define the world God said this about the tree, but now I'm getting this other information, so maybe I should see the tree how I see it. Maybe it's something I should eat and I should take for myself. What is the result of this first temptation? The result is that Adam and Eve die, but then that makes us ask the question, what is death? Because they don't immediately fall over on the ground, right? One of the things this story should do is to make us reflect long and hard on what death, on just what death means. The physical life of Adam and Eve does not stop in the instant they taste the fruit. This isn't the poison apple of the fairy tale. But something in them and between them does die. Their sense of themselves and their relationship with each other is shattered. They become morbidly self-conscious and thus try hurriedly to cover up their nakedness. For the first time, they feel shame. And what is even far worse, their relationship with God is also broken. They hide from him in fear and in shame. God God confronts Adam and Eve and declares judgment. The serpent is cursed. Childbirth for the woman is made much harder. And the ground itself is stricken so that work is made difficult for the man and far less pleasant. Adam and Eve are driven out of Eden and the entrance to the garden is barred. So how do we understand death then? Are they going to die physically? Yes. Later. But something deeper has happened. Although the man and woman do not physically die, at least not right away, we see from this story that death can mean much more than the end of physical life. Death means the distortion of relationships in general, and in particular, uh, and, and in particular, the end of the one vital relationship with God. So that's what we thought. Like, do we die physically now? Yes, but now, understanding we're we're all born in a sense dead, cut off with this vital relationship to God for whom we were made, and these relationships with each other are difficult and driven by conflict and you know uh, it takes incredible amount of intentionality to be healthy and all of our work our relationship with creation is also now it's hard it's by the sweat of our brow right we all know what it's like the work is great it's wonderful but it's frustrating and we collapse at the end of the at the end of the day because of work that's what it means to be dead this is distortion of all of our relationships with god with each other and with creation so, is this the end of the story? Yeah, no. The end. That's right. Go home. There's no hope. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'll, I'll, let me read at this point from the Jesus Storybook Bible because I love it. Yes? Oh, you guys. Yeah. By no means. By no means. No. Here's, here's from the Jesus Storybook Bible, their account of the end of Genesis of, of, uh, after the fall. He says, well, in another story, it would be all over, and that would have been the end. But not in this story. God loves his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back, 
One day he would make the world their perfect home again, and one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him, lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of, I'll get rid of sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. So it's lovely, even in this tragedy in Genesis 3, of, of the undoing of God's good creation, even then, even in the midst of that tragedy, God's purposes for his creation aren't done, right? His purposes for his kingdom that he started is not done. You see grace uh, right from the beginning pages. So though Adam and Eve try to run from God, God actually seeks them out. Remember with that question, where are you? He's pursuing after his fallen human beings. In declaring God's judgment, he curses the serpent. And he promised there's going to be enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. The woman's offspring is going to crush the serpent's head. And God promises to extinguish the evil forces Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve have unleashed. This is actually the first promise of the gospel in the Bible. We always get that uh, on ordination exams. Cam, first promise of the gospel. Where is it? Genesis 3.15. This is the first promise that God, a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman is going to come. He's going to crush Satan. He's going to defeat him for us, but it's going to come at a great cost to himself with the wounding of his heel, um, metaphorically speaking. Even God, you see God's grace, even after Adam and Eve are covered up in shame, what does God do? He covers them. He clothes them with animal skins. The first, some people say, is the first sacrifice in the Bible, the first animal that is sacrificed to cover them, to cover their shame and their nakedness. In the Old Testament, to receive someone's clothes could signify uh, their disinheritance. God's provision of clothes for Adam and Eve is a sign to them that he has not given up on his purposes for them. They are still to bear his image in the world. They are still to inherit the earth. Now again, we can't get too deep into this to cover the rest of Genesis 4 to 11. Well, let's just say it goes really bad, okay? Genesis 4 to 11, you see the effects of the fall. Everything, like we don't stop being human beings. We don't stop being made in the image of God, but it's, our rebellion has affected how we are human in the world. And specifically, sin distorts everything that's good. And that's a really important thing to note. Sin itself, sin doesn't create anything. The only thing sin can do is take good things that God has created and twist it into something evil. And so you see this all, all along the way, like the goodness of family. There's lots of good things family-wise in Genesis 4 to 11, uh, but it's polluted now by sin. So family, the family that God means as a source of companionship and joy has become a place of jealousy and rage and murder, right? The very next chapter, Cain and Abel, first brothers, that, uh, one who murders his own brother. You see cultural development. There's some good stuff happening, right? Culture is developing, but it's also misdirected by human beings. For instance, poetry. Poetry is a wonderful gift from God, but the first poet in the Bible, Lamech, he uses poetry in a distorted, twisted way as an instrument to threaten revenge and violence and death upon this little boy who made fun of him, basically. What you see in the rest of this this working out is evil has taken a stranglehold of human life. So how does God respond to it? One, with a flood, a catastrophic flood. It's an act of uncreation. Remember in the beginning... God created order, like water here, land here, and now he lets it go back because it's like this, this cosmic sign of, of what's happened with us undoing his creation. God is a holy judge, but he also responds with a covenant. It's an act of new creation because right after this, God is a gracious redeemer and he renews his covenant with Noah. All the same language that God gave to Adam about here's, here's your calling, he renews it with Noah. He says this is... My, my plans are still going, right? I'm, I'm still wanting to use a people to spread my reign, to spread my gracious rule throughout the world. What you're seeing is, in these chapters, is this complex mixture of beauty and pain, which, by the way, is our entire lives, right? This complex mixture of beauty and pain. Even in the new creation, right? You got this new commissioning with Noah to, like, keep going with the original command he gave to, gave to Adam and Eve. 
But you still see this corruption of God's good creation. This time, for example, wine. Wine is a good gift. It's created by God, but it's also misused sinfully. So Noah, the first vintner, if you will, in the Bible, he becomes drunk and disgraces himself and his family in chapter 9. In chapter 10, this positive fulfillment to like have all these babies and, and, fill, and fill the earth, right? Multiply and fill the earth has a negative side, as you're going to see in the very next chapter, in chapter 11. With all these people, what do they decide to do? Build a monument to their own glory. So this episode in Genesis 11 in the Genesis story represents the high tide of sin to this point in the biblical drama. Babel is a monumental communal attempt by Adam's race, Adam's race to wrest human autonomy, autonomy from God once more. Here we have a repetition of the eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but now performed on a grand social scale. By building this tower, they arrogantly challenge God to come down and bless their endeavor. Last quote. Babel stands as a monument to the perennial human desire to build our own kingdom apart from God. But God will have none of this false center for human existence. And so he scatters the builders of Babel. Name in scripture stands for identity. With this city and tower, the, the people have sought a false identity. A reputation built on human autonomy. God's response is to judge their sin for what it is and put a stop to their ambitious, idolatrous building program. But as we see again and again, judgment is accompanied by mercy. Though Genesis 11 marks a climax in the advance of human sinfulness within the creation, Genesis 12 marks yet another new beginning as God steadfastly pursues his purpose for his creation. That'll be next time, picking up with, with Abraham and the people, and the story of the people of Israel. All right, that's Act 1 and 2. You're welcome. My, just kidding. It's like scene, curtain. Uh, all right, I, I gave you a couple questions there uh, for you to process. And again, we have a little less time, so maybe take 10 minutes with your table or join with another table and maybe ask one of these questions, which is, uh, one of them is, does your experience match that of these first Israelites receiving the book of Genesis? Did you first come to know God as Redeemer and later as Creator? And why is it important to hold these things together? Question two is probably um, the best one, critically thinking. How does the Christian story of creation challenge our secular cultural stories today? Not only how did it challenge like uh, the Egyptian gods and the Canaanite gods and the Babylonian gods, how, how, does it, how does it interact with our stories on the nature of God, on the nature of what it means to be a human being, on the nature of the world we live in. You see the other ones. Talk amongst yourselves for 10 minutes, then we'll come back and talk um, all together for the last 10 minutes.